If you've got your Bible today, turn with me to John 11. We're going to begin in verse 32. When Mary arrived and saw Jesus, she fell down at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people wailing with her, he was moved with indignation and was deeply troubled. Where have you put him? Jesus asked them. They told him, Lord, come and see. Then Jesus wept. The people who were standing nearby said, See how he loved him. But some said, This man healed a blind man. Why couldn't he have kept Lazarus from dying? And again, Jesus was deeply troubled. They came to the grave. It was a cave with a stone rolled across its entrance. Roll the stone aside, Jesus told them. But Martha, the dead man's sister, said, Lord, by now the smell will be terrible because he has been dead for four days. Jesus responded, didn't I tell you that we will see God's glory if we believe? So they rolled the stone aside. Then Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, thank you for hearing me. You always hear me. But I said it out loud for the sake of all these people standing here, so they will believe that you sent me. Then Jesus shouted, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus came out, bound in grave claws, his face wrapped in a head cloth. Jesus told them, unwrap him and let him go. Of the 35 specific miracles of Jesus that we have in the Gospels, the one that we're going to talk about this morning is probably the most startling and and really, in many ways, the most interesting one. There were two other raisings of the dead in the Gospels. One was the son of the widow at Nain in Luke 7. The other was the daughter of Jairus, you remember, uh, told in Mark 5. But neither of those are as spectacular as this one. For this man had been in the grave for four days. It is somewhat of a mystery when we realize that John was the only gospel writer that told a story about Lazarus. Some scholars say that when the synoptic gospels were written, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when those were written, uh, there was still a very high anxiety about the whole country over the raising of Lazarus. The authorities, the soldiers, everybody was real uptight about that. It was the event that led finally to the death of Jesus. And to mention it would probably have endangered the life of Lazarus and those of his family. Later, many years later, when John wrote his gospel, the heat was off. And so he could tell the whole story of the whole event. Well, Lazarus was dead. He had been in the grave for four days. His body had already begun to decay. But after Jesus came, he was alive again. Many say this was Jesus' greatest miracle. 
No wonder John told all about it. Many say the miracle of Jesus was the event more than any other single thing that led to the crucifixion of Christ. The Pharisees, you see, could not put up with somebody that disagreed with them about almost everything. Everything they would say, he would say pretty much the opposite. And then when he started going around the land raising people from the dead, that was just too much. The Pharisees couldn't take that. So they immediately began to plan for his death. Well, I have four points in this sermon. The first one is, there is inevitability of death. Now, all of us that are here today are going to die unless our Lord returns before uh, our years uh, trail off. Uh, We are going to die. Um, Some people uh, think, well, I think it's probably going to happen this year. Uh, He's going to return this year. And some say, no, it's within 10 years. Well, I want you to know the odds are against you on that because it's been over 2,000 years. It might be in the next 10 minutes. It might be in tonight's service. It might be next week, next month, next year. It might be 5,000 years from now. Nobody really knows. Anybody that tells you they know is nuts. So you want to write that down somewhere. Now, some people are going to die from a terrorist attack. Those are going on every day somewhere in the world. I tell all my friends not to go to New York City. And if I haven't told you before, I'm telling you now, don't go to New York City. Because the terrorists, more than anything else, want to blow up New York City. Uh, I think there have been, I think this is right, eight different times there have been bombs that have exploded in New York City. They're trying to knock that city down uh, to show their power. Well, you can, of course, uh, die of some illness, uh, or you can be in an accident. A train can hit you, a truck can hit you, a bus can hit you, a car can hit you. You can die that way. When I was in college, I was preaching a revival in San Angelo, Texas, in a big church, and Uh, We were out on visitation. Uh, The singer would take a bunch of the teenagers, and I would take a bunch of the teenagers, and we would go out and visit people during the day and try and get them to come that night to the service and trust in Christ as their Savior. We were out uh, visiting. I was sitting in the back seat with a teenage girl, and there were two teenage girls in the front seat. That was back when the front seat went all the way across. It doesn't do that anymore, Uh, but it did then. Well, we were visiting, and the girl that was driving took her eyes off the road, and we ran into a concrete bridge abutment uh, at about 40, 45 miles an hour. Well, none of us saw the wreck coming. And we were all smashed, all four of us. I went through the front seat, and my head and shoulders went through the windshield. And then when the car flipped back from the impact, I came back through the car and ended up on the floor in the back seat. 
Well, it was a pretty rough few moments there. Uh, after a while, I woke up, and I was in some man's car. Uh, he had picked up all four of us, put us in his car, and was driving us to the hospital. I have told this story, uh, I'm sure, over a hundred times in my ministry. It happened when I was in college. And many people have come up to me after the service and said, Pastor, that was an angel that came by and picked you up because all of you were going to die if something didn't happen quickly. Well, I don't know about that, but I do know this. I was in the back seat of the car again, and I kind of leaned up, and I looked to the front seat, and the girl that was sitting in the right front was there, and her head from the right of her nose to the left of her ear was flat. And uh, I thought, that girl is dead. And then I looked in the rearview mirror, and I saw myself. And blood was coming out all over my head. And I thought, well, I'm dead too. <laughs> a couple of weeks later, I had over 100 stitches in my face. And it was a very unpleasant uh, experience. Well, I thought, you know, there's nothing I can do, so I laid down on the back seat. My overriding thought was, I'm dying. I'm dying right now. This is it. I thought, well, I'm a Christian. I'm going to heaven. Everybody says that's great. So uh, I'm going to uh, enjoy that, I'm sure. I, I thought, you know, I'm dying while preaching a revival. That's got to be in my favor. <laughs> so I guessed that everything was okay, and I passed out uh, on the back seat. None of us died, but we were all uh, hurt badly. I faced death, and it felt okay. Uh, it in fact, I know this sounds funny, but in fact, it was a wonderful feeling. Uh, I felt like I was right in the hands of God. And it, that's a great, great feeling. I know you've all had that feeling at some point in your life. And that was my time. The Bible says it's appointed men to once to die, and after that, the judgment. Hebrews 9.27. That verse came to my mind. The writer of Ecclesiastes reminds us that there is a time to be born and there's a time to die. Ecclesiastes 3, 2. Well, when we, like Louis XV of France, forbid the word death from being mentioned anywhere around us, we don't want it said in our presence because we don't want to face up to our mortality. If you feel that way, if you're doing that, then you're not living in the real world because death is coming for all of us. When we do speak of death, sometimes we soften the reality of it by using a euphemism. A euphemism is a word or a phrase used to describe something which is less direct or less offensive. 
Jesus used a euphemism in verse 11 of this chapter. He said, Lazarus has fallen asleep. Now, Jesus was not denying the reality of death. He was simply using a term common to that day that spoke of death. It was used by the pagans and it was used by the Jews. However, the moment Jesus saw that the disciples misunderstood what he was saying, he immediately did away with the euphemism and said plainly in verse 14, Lazarus is dead. Jesus did not want to hide the stark reality of death behind any euphemism. We call our world the land of the living. But really, in a very real way, it is the land of the dying. Because each of us, uh, with every passing day, are in the process of dying. I was amazed to learn that the biggest export from Sarasota, Florida, is bodies. Uh, When I read that, I thought, maybe I am in the wrong state. I like the way uh, the man from Arizona put it. Someone asked him what the death rate was uh, in Arizona. And the man that lived in Arizona said, it's the same as where you live. That's one per person. (laughs) Death is inevitable uh, experience in every life. My second point is I want you to notice the impact of the death. The experience of death causes an impact that is caused by this experience in our lives when it happens to someone that we're close with. This impact is clearly seen in our text today. In verse after verse, we see the eruptions of emotions. The emotions of the disciples is mentioned in verse 16. The emotion of the friends is mentioned in verse 19. The emotions of Martha are mentioned in verse 21. The emotions of Mary are mentioned in verse 32. The emotions of Jesus are mentioned in verse 33, 35, and 38. What an impact the death of someone that we love makes in our lives. Some folks try and deny the impact of death. They try to remove the family to an isolated part of the funeral chapel so that people cannot see them in their mourning. The implication there is that their mourning is something that needs to be hidden. People say, don't cry, be strong. There is nothing more natural at a funeral than the healthy grief of the family who have lost a loved one. There's nothing more natural than that. And it's hypocrisy to act as if death is no big thing. It is a big thing. When you have someone that you love die, it is a big, big, big thing. Of course, it hurts us deeply. We must not deny its impact. Jesus said, 
Lazarus is dead. And the experience of death made a great impact on everyone that was concerned, everyone that was related to Lazarus in some way. Point number three is the implications of death. Sir Thomas More stood against King Henry VIII and was put into the Tower of London in a certain section where people waited to be beheaded. Well, Thomas More was a godly, godly man. And he always, uh, writers say, had a great sense of humor. As he came to the scaffold on his way to execution, he said to the executioner, would you mind helping me up there? He said, I can get down on my own. Now, if death is inevitable, as it is, and if it makes a tremendous impact on our lives, which it does, what are the implications of it for us? Well, I think we need to encourage grief. Grief is the experience through which we help our feelings catch up to the fact of the event. When we do not participate in a healthy expression of grief, we only internalize our feelings and our emotions. And then they come out at a later time, perhaps in an unhealthy way. Don't ever let anybody tell you not to cry. Be strong, don't cry. That's wrong. You need to cry. It's a part of the grieving process. And it'll be very, very helpful uh, to you. Well, notice that Jesus did not reprimand Mary and Martha for crying. In fact, he joined with them. He went over and stood with them. He cried with them. He took part in the experience that they were feeling so forcefully. We must support the mourners. Jesus went to be with Mary and Martha. He didn't leave them to grieve alone. He stood by them. Our church does this well, and I'm proud of of our family, the way that we respond uh, to the death of one of our members. When we lose a church member, we stand with a family, and that's very, very important. Zdenka Lamb died this past week. Many of you did not know her, but we're going to have her funeral here. Uh, maybe Saturday of this week. We haven't set the time or the date yet. Whenever it is, I hope you'll come and support the family. That's a part of what the church of, of our Lord does. We stand with those that have lost a loved one. There are five symptoms of acute grief. Fatigue, a preoccupation with the image of the deceased, guilt, hostile reactions, and a loss of common patterns of conduct. 
when you see those things happening in somebody's life, then they are in acute grief, and they need your help. They need your arm around them. They need you to be praying for them and with them. As followers of Jesus have been commanded to bear one another's burdens, in Galatians 6, 2, one of the implications of death is that we be very, very sensitive to those that are mourning and watch for those acute signs of grief and then set our lives next to their lives. We want to do that so that we can provide to them comfort and relief and strength. That's what they need, comfort, relief, and strength. And we have that to offer as the people of God. We must also remember to answer to death. Verse 14 is not the last word. Now, if you just read verse 14 then you miss the whole thing. The answer to death is in verse 44. And that's the verse that we want to cling to. The triumphant note of this dramatic chapter in God's word is not the fact that Lazarus is dead, but that through the power of Jesus Christ, that believers will live again. Believers will live again. We must remember that death is an end, but it's not the end. We have to remember that it's a comma. It's not a period. We must remember that it is a phrase, a phase of transition, but not a permanent condition. Point number four is the irony of death. When Christians die, they die unto their new and perfect life. New and perfect life. It really wasn't Lazarus' time to die. He died. Jesus waited intentionally until Lazarus died so that he could show the people that he could not only heal uh, sicknesses and broken arms and legs and all sorts of things, but he could also raise people from the dead. It is a good thing that Jesus called out the name of Lazarus. He said, Lazarus, come forth. Now, if he hadn't said Lazarus, all the graves would have opened and hundreds of dead bodies would have gotten up and come to life and come forward. Well, when you die in faith, there is going to be a bright and glorious morning in heaven. You know, as we get older, we think more about heaven. Cindy and I had a basset hound for 14 years. We loved that basset hound. I mean, we really loved that dog. And that dog died. 
And the older I'm getting, I'm wanting that dog to be in heaven. I told Cindy last night, I'm probably going to get to heaven way before you do. I'm going to take care of a lady. That was our dog. Well, when we get there, the birds are going to be singing, the angels are going to be flying, and heaven is going to open up wide. Do you remember the beautiful words in that beautiful song, Beulah Land? They seem so appropriate. Do you want to go to Beulah Land? I do, and I, you know, I hope and pray each week as we come to this service that if there's anybody here that hasn't trusted in Christ as their Lord and Savior, if there's anybody here that hadn't nailed that down, you know, some people think, well, I think I am. Well, that isn't going to do. You know, you've got to know it. You've got to know it. If there's anybody here that doesn't know it, then you need to come forward in just a moment and Take a stand for Jesus. You know, you you don't want to be ashamed of him. Because he has control over the future destiny in your life. If you'll trust in him, believe in him, commit your life to him, you'll be in Beulah Land. If you've been visiting with us for a period of time, you're looking for a church home, we hope that you'll come and join with us, be a part of our family. It's real important to us that we reach out to as many folks as we can. So if you're here and you need a church home, just slip on down the aisle here in just a moment when we stand to sing together. I hope in these moments of dedication, consecration to the Lord, if there's a decision that you know that you need to make spiritually, I pray that you'll do it. I'll be standing here at the front waiting on you to come. Let's stand and sing together.